Hello and welcome back to all my darlings, where we are reading Marguerite Young's Angel in the Forest. We had some excitement last chapter with the Count Maximilian de Leon, who stole pretty much half of, not stole, I mean it was their own choice, but, well, he stole. He stole from, so we got half the... Rapites to switch over and become Leonites, and then he proceeded to squander the $105,000 that they had been uh, awarded as their due from being with the Rapites this whole time. And uh, Maximilian Leon and his secretary uh, squandered it all, just, just flat up squandered it all. Um, all right, we got three chapters. I'm unclear. So they've been in Harmony, Pennsylvania. They've been in Economy, Pennsylvania. So I'm unclear, and maybe this chapter will, so I'm hoping it comes up, when exactly they go to New Harmony, Indiana, when they end up there. So all of this has taken place outside of Indiana, and I'm, and I'm not sure when it's going to actually get into New Harmony. So, okay, we're on uh, page 78. Oh, 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 before I forget. Frickin' Dalkey Archive. So my, they were supposed to be issuing a new edition of Miss McIntosh, My Darling, and it had been pushed out twice, I believe. And um, maybe once, I'm not sure. I think it was twice. Anyways, my order was canceled. Uh, Amazon canceled it because... Um, I think it had been pushed out yet again to October, to this October of 2023. So screw it. Screw it. Screw them. They, any pre-orders or anything like that, it's done. If they ever reissue it, there's only a handful of copies even floating around on the internet where you could buy it. Um, some of them were pretty reasonably, reasonably priced. There was one first, I don't know if it's, I think it's first edition. It was published in 1965, so I'm pretty sure it was the first edition. That was a, a really good price on eBay, but they wanted a fortune for the shipping. I mean, it's a heavy book, so I, I kind of understand it, but... Um, uh, so it would still cost, like, almost uh, $90. Um, I wouldn't mind having a first edition. But, um, yeah, so... While that kind of works, if, if they, Dalkey actually publishes the freaking book, they have others that they have published because they put all this new series of book covers on them. So there's other ones out there that they've, that's already been published with this new style of book cover that they've put on these older editions. Um, if they release it in, in uh, October, that would still be fine because, um, I have this one, and then I have Harp Song for a Radical, and there's a reading group. I think Paper Pills is still doing it on in November. So if they get that out in October, it would still work for me to read it again on the podcast and still be able to podcast it and read it again, you know, with my along with my notes. But it would be a different reading before I just read the book, and this time it would be reading it with commentary, with my notes, with uh, Stephen Shaviro's uh, commentary as well that he published in the Facebook group. 
and he published it as a EPUB, as an EPUB with notes. So I'd like to get all of that together and read it again. So, but otherwise, yeah, the orders have been canceled. Anything that you pre-ordered, if you had it pre-ordered, it was all canceled. <sighs> Stupid things. All right. So we are on page 78, the fading of the golden rose. Unto thee shall come the golden rose, the first dominion. Micah 4, 8, Lutheran text. After Frederick's departure, Father Rapp, oh, and Frederick died. After Fred, in the last chapter. After Frederick's departure, Father Rapp became more and more the mystic, giving himself up to the dream of the past. Like any other old man, he would sit in his garden with his blanket drawn up to his chin, motionless. In his garden, within view of that chair, he caused to be erected a colossal wooden statue of harmony, like the figurehead of a ship, not male, not female, a journeyer over grass like surf, a graphic statement of his war against the evil world. Economy, the present scene, had slipped from its moorings. He studied the maps of seas and the boundary lines in Canaan, Syria, Ethiopia, where the refulgent, refulgent image of measureless cubits, refulgent? Of measure, I don't know how you say that. I don't even like that word. Um, image of measureless, I know Young does. Image of measure, measureless cubits was the universal architecture. He traced the wanderings of all old prophets. He was sure of a path through the Red Sea, a division of water like the stone walls of a lane in Württemberg. He was sure of a tent on Mount Sinai, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, a spiritual rock to drink of. There were fish gates at the city of David, peach and cherry trees by the walls of Jericho. He was sure of a hat factory at Nineveh, a shoe factory at Tyre, barley and hop fields in the neighborhood of Babylon, or Tyre, I don't know. Barley and hop fields in the neighborhood of Babylon, yea, an angel in the wheat, a crown of diamonds. There was balm and Gilead, certain shifting, certain veerings, but the universe tacked true to its one course ever. Edom, Moab, Ramoth, Gilead. They were familiar to him as harmony, economy, his own old shoe. Father Rapp's reminiscences suggested a vaster experience than he had had. He spoke of the lake of Sodom, the waters of the east, as things nearer at hand than economy. He knew the exact well where Joseph was cast by his envious brothers, the tree where Absalom was caught by his hair among the oak boughs, various old property laws. He spoke of grain markets at Corneth as if it were Shawneetown. He remembered Egypt as a very fair heifer, and he hired men and eunuchs like fatted bullocks and the night watchmen of Babylon, how they had sung at curfew in a hidden place in Ethiopia where the Raphites could go. The Wabash seemed now the river Euphrates, now the river Ahava. Its trees not cherry but dusty olive, his own people the children of Sena or the children of Pasher. Their black hair sleek as crow's wings, their feet shod in fire. Had not his ark taken grain, venison, poultry, pork, and flour down to New Orleans? Had not the raven fed the prophet? Or fell the place over the against the water gate to the east, where the tower stands out in the sky, and there was a gate for horses and sheep? Was it not harmony, down to the last butter keg? God's children had been poor in harmony, Father Rapp recalled, yet had become rich. They had, they had escaped bondage, bubonic plague, the slaughter of the firstborn, Napoleonic wars, starvation, Philistines, a two-party system, locusts, corruptions of all kinds. They had built their tabernacle, tabernacles by rills of sparkling water in America, the New Jerusalem, for God had never led them to a stream dried up. Most wonderful of all characters, it seemed to Father Rapp, was Noah whose ark had contained two of every beast and bird, from the elephant to the silkworm, and eight people besides. 
Father Rabbi Noah had much in common. Another favored father was Moses, whose one program, like his own, had been to choose the lesser evil. The many unborn rabbite infants, Father Rabbi felt, had escaped evil entirely. How shrewdly he had beaten the devil at his own game. Father Rabbi was beautifully confused, considering that the Monroe Doctrine was his work, that he had despised the Russians in Alaska, and that he had outwitted both Nebuchadnezzar and the British crown. He had favored, he announced, the acquisition of California and Texas, which had been in the hands of feudal Catholics. He had favored all his life by similar conquests, the acquisition of Asia Minor, Syria, Damascus, Crete, Baalbek, Tyre, Hong Kong, India, the islands, the lands of Gog, and Magog. As Father Rapp's body failed, his mind increased even to the last. His mind traversed the earth and time in the flicker of an eyelid. He spoke increasingly of the new he spoke increasingly of the ways of lions, wild asses, and slave traders, the ways of the horse, hawk, eagle, and Wall Street. God's power as depicted in the hippopotamus, crocodile, and Alexander Hamilton, the treasures of the earth in St. Louis, the far places, African chieftains, Brazilian ostriches, the Missouri Fur Company, with its forts on the turgid Mississippi, iron ore in the neighborhood of economy, the fluctuations of markets of Philadelphia, New Orleans, and Ur of the Chaldees. Evidently, all existed contemporary with him. From Father Rapp's point of view, as he sat in a rose garden looking out on asexual harmony, Thomas Jefferson seemed the most decadent dreamer, eating grass like Nebuchadnezzar, whereas Andrew Jackson had slain a hundred Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. And Andrew Jackson's father was buried in a nameless grave. America, Father Rapp said, would be the first of the great industrial nations, a center for iron, oil, and high explosives. The American Empire would comprise the entirety of Earth. He predicted a foundry in the neighborhood of Pittsburgh, a pit of fire, and mortal faces blackened with smoke and terror. God, the principle of power, was secretly concerned, he believed, with the manipulation of electricity and a symbolic arc when the world should be destroyed by fire. Meanwhile, Father Rapp's luggage was always packed, his best clothes folded in a box of cherry wood like a coffin, though doubtless the moths had long inhabited them, as they had inhabited the skull of Ozymandias. At any rate... Father Rapp was ready, on the least sign from above, to start out for the New Jerusalem, which seemed to be of this creation after all in an excellent real estate, complete with lustrous fig trees. He kept busy checking on sailings, routes, horses, camels, supplies, expenses, ways to cut corners, lesser evils such as the British at Gibraltar. Oh, how he yearned to drink of the spiritual rock. As to the world's end, however, he experienced toward the end new revelations. In some far distant geological cycle, the universe of matter, which, like the universe of spirit, has been distorted and diseased through the fall, will be restored to its former beauty and happiness, and sin and suffering will finally be banished. There were a few more years. As his face waxed pale and his bones groaned with cold, he thought constantly of the fig tree shaking its ripe fruit down into the mouth of the eater. To have a fig tree was his one ambition, worthier than a thousand hats in the hat factory. A mere orange would not satisfy him. At times he seemed reconciled to an island off the coast of Florida. Again, he believed that Florida would be the new Jerusalem, a place where the old do not grow older. Alas, he could not move unaided. Lying still in bed, he commanded that Rosina should play her harp for him and think no more about the cultivation of worms. The worm, Rosina, he said, will care for itself. In August, a sultry day in 1847, Father Rapp roused himself out of a coma and appeared once more at his window as preacher to his people. He was ninety years in age and insubstantial. He repeated, however, his old promise as if it were new, that the, delayed, that the decayed states must dissolve and the sinner must perish, for this was ever God's will, and then the falsehood by which man had lived would be destroyed forever in a city transparent as glass. 
Had he not been assured by that great God in heaven above, who sees all things, that he was destined to lead his people to the land on the banks of the river Euphrates, a city of everlasting harmony, where there were harpers harping, he might believe that this was the very hour of his interior death. It could not be. The voice of Jehovah had spoken out of a cloud, assuring him that he should reach a hundred summers in the valley of Sharon, where there are honeycombs and there are strawberries. His lips thinned to a translucent line. His head rolled back. He never spoke again. Mourned greatly by all his people, who felt that God had somehow miscalculated and gone astray, Father Rapp was buried in a plain wooden coffin under the shade of the ubiquitous apple tree. In respect to his wishes, no monument was placed above his grave. Soon, the purple-headed clover and grass had covered it over, and no one could have told the place where it was. In an orchard, a little beyond the stud farm, beyond the upland pastures and the piggery, Father Rapp had lived thirteen years beyond the promised coming of one. And that expectation disappointed, he had seen, however, Indian and other wars, the growth of national unity, the moving frontier, multiplication of slaves, carelessness of human life, the rise of rugged individualism, the rise of high finance. He, in his long career, had committed, at most, two murders. Twenty years after Father Rapp's death, a writer in the Atlantic Monthly observed, it needs no second thought to discern the end of Rapp's schemes. Scriptural communism was ever a type of graft, the very thing which it opposed. Two or three strong-willed managers converted the machinery of economy into a powerful money-making agent. Through them, repite economy kept a hand on the world, or, more accurately speaking, on the market. Pipelines were constructed to connect economy's oil fields with industrial centers. Coal and gas businesses flourished, though at some distance from economy, a placid village, an almost deserted one. Outside economy, the many industries were enlarged, with, with as many branches as an octopus. The Rabbites were perhaps the first great business concern to import droves of labor from the lotus-scented Orient. Japanese laborers worked in the silk mills at a slavery of a few cents a day. On these sons of heaven, the joys of celibacy were not imposed. In Rabbite economy, celibacy continued unabated, perhaps because most of the Rabbites were in the late autumn of their lives. Father Rapp's granddaughter, a musician, enjoyed for many years, however, the sheep-like devotion of a Rabbite manager. They believed themselves to be brother and sister in Jesus Christ. They looked, for, they looked forward to no marriage but the marriage of the Lamb. This was their strange, sad, unerring romance. The Rabbites were truly a dwindling people, as had been predicted, although worth something more than a million dollars, as had also been predicted. No new converts were brought out from Germany. The financial corporation passed with each year into the possession of fewer and fewer hands. Like peaceful grandparents, this little people sat on their doorstoops. This little people sat on their doorstoops in the late evening light of day, and their lives exchanged a few words. Their new masters permitted smoking as a reward for many years of tobacco growing. Perhaps the new Jerusalem seemed still a promise which would be fulfilled: a renunciation of the flesh, a reunion of the human family in heavenly mansions. Perhaps Father Rapp was sure to greet the immigrants when they reached that regal shore, the world which lies always beyond our grasp. Perhaps not. They were a ship of state which had been dry-docked and left to rot. Grass grew high in the streets. Bats flickered in a ruined doorway. There was an atmosphere of cherished decay. Apparently not one peaceful rabbite that with red eye of his pipe burning in darkness suspected what had been his part in the building of America, a smokestack where there had been an angel. Nor would any think of claiming a reward in the flesh, naturally, for the flesh had waned, and the individual had long ago been lost. No rabbite was acquainted, it seems, with Walt Littman's barbaric yop up over the rooftops of the world, his surging affinity with nature and natural man, his invitation to the world to take his clothes off and come out under the sky. Nor was Whitman acquainted with rabbite order. Listing the senses of the 19th century, every human, every grass blade, he omitted the negative aspect, the golden rose of Micah, the thousand hats for non-existent customers. Maybe the rabbites were the profound, profounder thinkers. Maybe the unreality sufficed 
where reality would have failed. The facts of the case are these, finally, that the country churchyard was converted over to the uses of the Bethlehem Steel Corporation, of which it thus provides the shadowy background and that the 19th century dream of a new Jerusalem resulted in the 20th century dream of organized death. Had the Rappites survived as an entity, they might have rivaled Rockefeller or Henry Ford, it has been said. A model factory, a model community, no labor problems. They perished, presumably, and in that fact lies their chief charm. Only new harmony would retain, dilated, and at large, the memory of these founding fathers, whom God had stirred to build a city in the wilderness. All right, I am confused. I must have messed up. I mean, I thought they were... I kn really? What was that? Oh, I think an animal ran by. Um... Maybe when she's saying harmony, she means new harmony. And they're at the banks of the Wabash. And then from there, they moved to Economy, Pennsylvania. But I, started, I thought they started out in Harmony, Pennsylvania. <sighs> no, A Journey to the Wabash in 32. Page 32. All right. So when she says harmony, she must mean new harmony. Yeah, in 1814, they did go to the Wabash. So that must be New Harmony in Indiana. So they must have been in Harmony this whole time. So it's not Harmony, Pennsylvania, I guess. Um, they've been in New Harmony this whole time, and then they left for Economy, Pennsylvania. I thought they went back and forth, like Harmony, Pennsylvania, to New Harmony in Indiana, and then to Economy in Pennsylvania. I think that's how it went. I'm sorry. I'm confused. And uh, I wish Young had pointed that out, especially since there is a Harmony, Pennsylvania, so close. So, um, because the maze and stuff st is in New Harmony, so they had to have been there. So, the Rapites are gone. We have a short chapter that goes back to 1940s New Harmony, and then we go on to the Owenites. So the Rapite community only took less than 100 pages. We're on page 84 uh, for the next chapter. So the rest of it belongs to the Owenites. And that takes up the remainder of the book. So like less than 100 pages belong to the Rapites, and then over 200 pages, a little over 200 pages, are for the Owenites. Interesting. I mean, there's some sprinkles in with 1940, present day 1940, uh, but that's just a, that's not a whole lot. And Robert, Robert Owen was pretty, I did not know the history of Robert Owen in that in uh, England at the time, so it was pretty interesting. Um, I think it came with the progressive era in the United States. All right. That's all. It's a cooler day today, but it's nice. I don't know if I'll be recording tomorrow, but if not, I will be back next week. Thank you for listening. Bye.